0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv. double dot TV. Today on the podcast, an idea that is truly original proper out-of-the-box thinking. Damon Vander and Andy Gosling are the CEO and CTO respectively of Magpie Aviation. If you haven't heard about Magpie Aviation yet, it is possibly because until very recently, just literally a few weeks ago, they were in stealth mode. In fact, it was so secret what they were working on that when I met Damon and Andy at a recent industry conference, they would not say what they were working on. Although some people in the know had assured me that it was something really, really cool. And indeed it was. Damon and Andy are reviving and giving a new purpose to a concept that has been around for quite some time. That is aerotowing. So what is aerotowing? Basically, a tractor aircraft pulls another aircraft through the air, and this second aircraft that is being pulled doesn't use its own propulsion. If you have watched classical Second World War movies, such as The Longest Day or A Bridge Too Far, you know what I'm talking about. Because towed gliders were used extensively in the Second World War in order to launch stealthy airborne assaults like in D-Day. Well, Magpie Aviation is recovering that concept, but with modern technology and with a rather different mission. Basically, they are solving the problem of energy density of batteries, which is so limiting when it comes to aircraft range, and they are concentrating all propulsion power in one battery electric aircraft that is pulling the other aircraft, which is where the passenger or cargo are traveling. If it sounds outlandish, it is, well, because it is a little bit, but the Magpie team have done their research and have done very thorough development work on this concept. They have even tested it for real and successfully with a small-scale prototype. But you will have to listen to this episode to get the full details. You can be pretty sure that this technology won't leave you indifferent. So without further ado, let me welcome Damon and Andy to the podcast. Hello, how are you doing?
1: Not bad. How are you, Miguel?
0: Very well. Um, it's great to see you again. We met just, I think, about a month ago in Nice, uh, the European Regional Airline Association Conference, an event packed with uh, lots of interesting insights and very interesting people and companies. And that's the place where I heard for the first time about Magpie Aviation, which is the, the company you guys are leading and, and, and growing. At that time, it was kind of secret. I didn't know exactly what you guys were up to what you what sort of technology you were developing? I only heard from a common friend of us that it was very, very interesting. And indeed, just a couple of weeks later, you went public, and I must say I was very impressed because that was something that's really original. I mean, I'm seeing all the time new projects, new ideas in in the field of sustainable aviation and innovation in aerospace in general. But I must say, yours was really, really one of a kind. So really grateful that you guys found some time to to be here on the podcast and tell us a bit more about this project. But first of all, like every guest, I, I'm going to ask you to just briefly introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into aviation and how you started this project.
1: Yeah, I guess I can I can start. Um, so <clears throat> I started in electric uh, aviation in 2009. I joined as an intern at this company, Makani Power, that was trying to um, use tethered aircraft for power generation. You can think of it like deleting everything but the tip of a wind turbine blade. Uh, Pretty challenging business proposition. I had just been looking for something to do before a a climate science PhD and uh, ended up uh, as the chief engineer and then as the interim CEO at the company. Uh, after my boss there um, died in the office, a fellow named Corwin Harden, incredibly talented and very much before his time. We found a good home for uh, that company and sold it to Google. I then ran it in Google for a few years. Again, challenging business proposition, but wonderful place to develop electric uh, aircraft kind of competencies. After that, moved to uh, Kitty Hawk Heavyside, founded that, and uh, we built the for a while, longest range, you know, highest speed EV tall, little single-seater. We found there wasn't uh, a huge interest uh, from our investors in certifying the aircraft, decided it was time to move on and led me here.
0: Okay. When did you start, Magpie, if I may ask?
2: When did we start? Uh, in December, late December 2021.
0: Okay. So it's pretty recent. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, not too long. Very good. Um, yeah. Sorry. I interrupted you. When <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my my journey has been pretty similar. So I've been working in electric flying things for my entire career. My background's in uh, electrical engineering. I was also at Makani and and Heaviside. So at Makani, I developed the motor controllers that are on the M600. So it's the big two megawatt wind turbine that Damon was talking about. And then at Heavy side, I led the hardware team, so, you know, responsible for everything that wasn't high-level software or carbon fiber, so uh, high-voltage motor controllers, batteries, power distribution, triplex flight computer, air data, kind of that, everything that makes an electric uh, VTOL aircraft fly, basically.
0: So, MagPhi, I don't know really where to start because it's, uh, <laughs> as I said, it's... Sort of a well, it's one of a kind, but it's actually based on a concept that has existed, as you say on your website, that has existed for a for a very long time. Towing aircraft, having one aircraft pulling another aircraft by uh, I don't know if you call it a cable, or a rope, uh, <laughs> rope, tether, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's basically how gliders go get airborne. And even in the in World War II, in the Second World War, the the, the gliders that that was a concept that was widely used, and thousands of, of soldiers were deployed this way with gliders that were being pulled by by a, another aircraft, C forty seven or a bomber, and like in D Day, there there's this famous movie, The Longest Day, where that shows how the a glider attack managed to take one of the key bridges so that the allied troops could could get through and those planes were actually being towed by C47s or, or bombers so you are kind of recovering this concept um I think it's best if you explain in a few words how it worked uh just in a few words yeah. that, uh, you will elaborate but you have a hybrid electric aircraft that wants to go from point A to point B. But the problem is that the batteries right now, they don't have enough energy density to make long distances. So what you propose is that this aircraft takes off, it flies for a while, and then when it's in mid-air, it's met by another aircraft that is packed with batteries. And the two aircraft connect, and the aircraft with the batteries, which is a fully electric aircraft, then pulls the other aircraft part of the way until it's closer to the destination, and then they disentangle from each other and the hybrid electric aircraft ends up landing on its own power. And that way you extend the range of the hybrid electric aircraft. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I'm, I'm really fascinated by this. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe start with the motivation. Yeah. I, yeah. I
1: mean, let's start with the motivation and with, you know, um, kind of an analogy with electric cars, um, you know, i think we're aiming towards 20 percent of global sales being electric this coming year so they're, they're really taking off they're becoming very cost competitive but for them to do so you know people had to find a way to get range when you want to go on a road trip when you want to drive longer than your commute
0: indeed i had a i had like- this experience recently i had to drive uh had a long drive ahead and mm-hmm. Uh, it was a small car, not <laughs> the car with the most range out there in the market. But actually, I, I didn't make it uh, on time because I had to stop a few times to to,
1: stop to, <laughs> charge. to
0: recharge batteries. So yeah. I know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, with electric cars, with the ones that do charging um, really well, which unfortunately is only uh, probably Tesla at this point, when you want to do a road trip, you have about three hours of range before you have to stop and charge. And then the charging can be, you know, 30 minutes. So it it actually works very nicely to have a supercharger network to get you your range when you're building an aircraft that, uh, kind of stopping and charging when you might, you know, want to take a bathroom break anyway, that doesn't really work because one, your, your range out of an electric aircraft, it tends to be about the same, but you're going faster. So it's like an hour. And if you have to stop and land every hour, you give up the whole advantage of flying just really? because of the cycle time, uh, getting on the ground, taxiing, plugging in, all that. It really is um, a lot more than uh, for a car. Yeah. So basically our approach, you know, starting from the, the fundamental assumption, battery electric, because it's far more efficient. It's the clear winner in the space. It's the leading technology for any industry where it's kind of feasible. Battery electric, you need to find some way to get the energy to the aircraft to get the range. Because the batteries, they're getting better at mo- a moderate rate. Um, so there's no magic battery out there, probably, that's going to just get you the range. Cheaper. We're going to have a, an expert yeah. in, ba-
0: in, in batteries here yeah. in the podcast, just in a, in a matter of days. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you're Great. right. Still, yeah, wonderful. Some, some advances, but still a long way to go. Yeah, yeah.
1: But if you say, you know, they're going to get better at a gradual rate, maybe the same... give or take, that it's been over the last 30 years on average. And they're going to get cheaper at a continuing pretty impressive rate, which has been about a 90% price drop per decade over the last uh, 30 years. Then you come to the conclusion, you know, battery chemistry won't save us. Batteries will be the cost-effective option, but you need some way to get the range. And that's where the towing concept comes in.
0: I have a few questions. Well, uh,
1: quite a few, actually.
0: Um, This system would require a degree of coordination between two elements here. One is the element, one is the aircraft that is carrying the the people or or the cargo. And the other one is the the towing aircraft. So first of all, you're designing the, the system that would connect both. How much of this whole system are you, are you, Designing and getting involved in developing. I'm assuming that some of these aircraft could be just a conventional aircraft that can be adapted, and and also the the towing aircraft that it's going to be is going to be basically like a flying battery. Is this going to require a specific design, or you're going to adapt uh, an existing airframe and and then fill it with batteries and just connect this um, sort of connector mechanism between between the two, like the cable and the and and, the, and this. Uh, system that it's a bit like the air refueling so if when you see the images it 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 reminds you a lot of what the military do when they have to refuel mid-air even if you and your website you say that it's easier i'm not an expert so i don't know exactly what how does it work and how it differs from the mechanism and uh, used by the by the mid-air refueling
2: yeah i mean we can to start like back to your your first question um you know which piece are we working on right we 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 started by focusing on what we see is like the most novel and new technology, which is how do you connect aircraft in air easily, safely, and reliably? And that hasn't, to our knowledge, been demonstrated before. So we, you know, the, the thing we did in March where we, we hooked up our um, our uh, PIC-20D to our uh, uh, PIPISTROVIRUS, that was, a, that was a world's first. And And that consists of, you know, the probe that you put onto the front of the payload aircraft, the winch and, and tow line system you put onto the back of the tow aircraft and what we call an active hook, which is at the end of the tow line. It looks a little bit like an aerial refueling drogue, except that it's actually um, has its own avionics and its own controls, such that it can position itself directly in front of the payload aircraft. So, for example, in, in um, Navy operations where they do um, probe and drogue refueling, There, the pilot of the jet aircraft is uh, of the fighter is just manually flying it into the boom, into the drogue, Right. And if you see videos online, you know, that's it's not an easy process, especially when you've had to do it eight times and you're 10 hours in or whatever.
0: Yeah. Um, you you show this video on on your website. It, it it looks really smooth. I don't know if they that's because you have a very experienced pilot or is it because of the system is so smooth in doing that.
2: Well, it's it's because the system is it, it looks almost surreal because the active hook doesn't move in the frame of the video relative to the payload aircraft, but that's not because the payload aircraft isn't moving around, it's just that the active hook is following it no matter where it goes. So, you know, if you hit a vertical gust, the active hook just goes up with you. Um, if you translate left or right, it just follows you left or right. And so the pilot isn't having to control any lateral or vertical positioning. They're they're purely responsible for monitoring the closing rate between.
1: One of the things I'll, I'll add just on the, you know, the degree of coordination and working in the airspace is, you know, a nice proof point for this is that we're able to go out and do it today. So it. You know, I think it sounds very different to people than typical commercial operations today because it is, but it's not that typical from, um, sorry, not that different from typical operations in the airspace today. It's like we go out and we do practice rejoins and we're able to go out and, and, you know, get off tow, get on tow and basically make every element of the system work um, now, um, which we think is a pretty big proof point that we could do it, you know, commercially someday.
0: So then you right now, you're focused on on the, let's say, on the connecting system between the two aircraft. And then are you planning to get involved in designing uh, so, some element of the of some of the flying elements? So the one of the two aircraft that are flying or that would be something that could be retrofitted into an existing aircraft?
1: Yeah. So we're we're basically doing everything um, in a way where it's possible to do with retrofits. Obviously, with battery electric, just the way that the aircraft has to be built for a very efficient battery electric, you do end up wanting to eventually go to new builds. But part of the um, value of the system we're doing is that it works well with the retrofits as well. So just for example, we've baselined internally a 19,000 pound uh, which is you know the top end of Part 23 of you know small aircraft. We have baselined a 19,000 pound aircraft design, working with uh, Neil Wilford, who designed the uh, Sky Courier, which, as you'll know, is a 19,000 pound uh, cargo aircraft. Mm-hmm. So a very similar design problem, and we basically used our reference design there of what is a very practical, certifiable Part 23 aircraft. For a tow plane to drive a lot of our longer-term calculations. Now, will we build that someday? Our hope is not in a way like it, the the ideal scenario is that um, we see uh, all the other players in the space come along and we make our little tow system. But you know, the the optimization for an electric aircraft is very different. So we're certainly considering whether that's a path we'll go in in the long run.
0: Uh, I'm just thinking here whether someone has tried to basically pack an aircraft with batteries to operate as a as a purely as a, as a towing aircraft. I don't know if there's any precedent or anyone that has. Well, most
2: say. electric airplanes to date have very few seats. So you could kind of say that's already what they're doing. Right. I mean, I think that the the real big difference would be the uh, cabin volume, right? If you don't need to put people in, people are pretty, or very, they're not very dense. So yeah. you need a lot of volume for the given payload. So if you were to design a pure tow plane, you wouldn't need that cabin volume necessarily. And so that would be one difference you would see. But um, is it that
0: easy to replace, let's say, people with batteries? Because I guess there are uh, like thermal and volume and weight issues here to consider. And, and the regulators also would like to have a look at that how how much battery you can pack in a in a specific cabin or something like that
1: that's actually one of the nice things about this towing approach is you have the new technology which the regulators rightly so are you know being cautious about introducing into commercial service with passengers on board and you put it on an aircraft that doesn't have passengers and to add on top of that that aircraft also doesn't have to fly over populated areas because you pick up your toes say just to use a local example, over the Central Valley, not over you know the more sub you know suburban Bay Area, and that doesn't mean you should cut any corners, but it does mean that you have a, a lower stakes option for how you introduce that technology, and we think that's a nice that's a nice um, attribute of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So then your you know your tow plane can be you know, much easier to certify um, aircraft. It gives the regulators some peace of mind and your payload aircraft can be, you know, for example, still a retrofit of something that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's much cheaper to get to that end result as well when it comes to certifying something.
0: And here there's another element that I would like to discuss. It is basically in your system, you would have the passenger or cargo aircraft departing from, uh, let's say, a conventional airport, like the ones mm-hmm. we have now, and then midway through the route, it will be met by this other aircraft that will be departing from another airport. You say one of the elements that make it possible for for this system to have a relatively low cost is that this towing aircraft would be based at airports that have low traffic, uh low fees, uh, mm-hmm. but still there's an element of coordination here and you will still have two flying things to do what previously was done by just one uh, mm-hmm. aircraft. So the, the question here is how you coordinate this. Do you plan to get involved as well in the coordination? or That's something that you envisage operators, other companies doing. What's your role in this?
1: So we've seen different um, levels of interest from uh, different operators where some prefer to be the uh, kind of full service provider and some prefer that the towing is a service. And that makes sense. And you can think that economically also. You know, if there are a number of operators in a region, it's more efficient to run one combined tow as a service uh, system versus if there's a sole operator who's doing, you know, doing this. It's probably more efficient for them to keep that in house. So we're we're adaptable to both models. Uh, you are right. Now you have two aircraft in the air. When you compare it to just you know using a baseline electric aircraft, you can think of it a lot like flying two aircraft at half the weight each. And we know that you know it's not it's not as if flying in a 737 costs twice as much as flying in a triple seven, even though one is half the other, roughly. It's you know you you pay a slight premium to have those two aircraft, but you know that's basically made up for it by the fact that for longer routes we're able to get the unused battery back on the ground um, and charging it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we talked about just to bring up an example. We talked about a single tow. But one of the attractive things with this technology is that you can do multiple toes. So single toes are attractive when you're trying to do, you know, just to give an example, it's a great way to go back and forth between two regions where you might be able to fly into all the little airports in, you know, uh, the San Francisco region, all the little airports in the L.A. region with only two airports that are set up for charging for the tow planes. Mm -hmm. That's a very nice low infrastructure way to start going back and forth on electric. Um, But then with multiple toes, that's basically where you see the the big dividends and that's the reason that you know it really becomes worth it is that you can do with multiple toes you get the unused battery back on the ground you get fresh battery up in the air and you can fly routes that are much closer to that average of a thousand miles you know with three toes you can get to the thousand miles you can fly routes that are meaningful from an emission reduction standpoint and not just kind of nibbling at the edges of you know a percent here or there on these kind of oddball short routes.
0: There's a coordination layer of complexity though, because you yeah. have it could be either one company operating both elements or separate companies, but also other elements. What happens, for example, if there is bad weather in one region along the way, but not in the other at the both ends yeah. of the of, of the um, of that route or That's-
1: yeah, that's why it's a good fit for hybrids, you know, so if, you're, if your main aircraft is, is a hybrid, you can carry liquid fuel reserves, which are lighter, and it makes the whole thing more efficient. And um, then if you miss a tow, you can also, you know, make it through that tow, missed tow leg um, on fuel. So let's say you are operating that way, and you miss 1% of tows, which would be, you know, you're not doing great at that point. That's basically immaterial from an emissions and cost standpoint. Mm-hmm. So we think that in in that way you can get to practically 100 percent of emission reduction, but um, not really have to pay for the intermittency problems that could come up. For example, with uh, weather like you cite.
2: That's why you wouldn't really move past four-ish toes, right? Because your your you know mission reliability goes as like the yeah, because total every reliability is, to the end. Where every end step, every, toes, every, every
0: right? step introduces a even if it's a small element of uncertainty adds up at the end. Um,
2: yeah. So that's why we see this, you know, the the, the achievable range scaling from a thousand miles to, you know, forward with batteries getting better, right? We we don't think this would be a very good fit for, you know, serving 2,500 mile flights today. Mm-hmm. Right? And
0: up to which size of aircraft can you scale this system? How big can the towed aircraft be and how, and, and also how, big and powerful can the, the towing aircraft be under this yeah. system?
1: that's one of the nice things. I think people often cite size limitations for electric aircraft, but those are only really practical from the average speeds of those aircraft. There's not actually a scaling limitation um, as to how big you can go on electric. So with towing, um, the towing technology itself, it is also, it's roughly sublinear. Like it, it actually gets a little easier as you go bigger. But with towing, you enable basically the you know electric aircraft of any size to have commercial value. So we we don't really see a place we'd have to stop. I mean, there are electric machines that kind of match the size of anything out there that you'd have to um, have to deliver. So it's you know it's an integration challenge certainly and a certification challenge to make an electric seven thirty seven. But there's not some fundamental limit.
0: You mentioned in your website that you cost of operating this system would be similar to the baseline cost of operating. uh, For example, uh, I think you mentioned specifically an Mm ATR-72 turboprop aircraft. I think you mentioned a number. It's um, basically 20 cents per average seat mile as a cost of reference. And (laughs) your system might be slightly higher, but not too much, and cheaper than flying with SAF of with hydrogen so can you yeah. elaborate a bit more how you come up with these numbers Um yeah. what what are the the driving factors here because as we mentioned earlier we have more aircraft to coordinate to staff mm-hmm. but then i guess well there are savings or the fact that one of the aircraft is not actively consuming energy during part of the of the route uh what what are the what are the elements here contributing? yeah to, to this cost so, equation.
1: Um, I can give you some of the assumptions that go into that one. We assume that um uh electric propulsion will end up at roughly half the maintenance cost of uh gas turbines. There's a good reason to believe that. They don't get hot. You know, you don't you're not trying to operate it right, you know, a little bit above the melting point of the metal in in the device, which is what gas turbines do. Um the um Uh, Battery cost, we basically project it forward to 2030 at the trend of the last three decades to get to that number. So, you know, continued improvements, but nothing groundbreaking. Um, We assume that each aircraft, you know, you have these two aircraft, which are each a little smaller as compared to, you know, building an electric aircraft. Um, And we assume that they basically cost like two thirds as much for the, the tow aircraft as for the, for the, uh, payload aircraft, you know, you don't have to put in the, uh, it's kind of like a freighter conversion a little bit in that you don't have to put in the seats and cabin and you don't really need a lot of the systems involved with keeping a bunch of, um, humans alive, um, and and happy in there. So I think that that's kind of a reasonable range to be in, you know, that's kind of the simplistic view, right? So you're, you're, energy cost comes down, your maintenance cost comes down, but now you're paying for some extra pilots and you're paying for, you know, some extra aircraft. And so it adds up to a little bit more than today, but comparable. Um, We've also done a much more thorough analysis where we look at, you know, actual block time costs on ATRs and we do the breakdown of an airline, Um, working with a consultancy, um, Aviation Economics in, in, in the UK to make sure we're, you know, doing that accurately. And that comes to, by and large, the same Conclusion as the simplistic model. So hopefully that gives you some intuition for how how that pans out.
2: The end result is kind of an unintuitive result, right? Yeah, it was actually something that we kind of prevented us from starting this company for several months because we kept thinking, oh no, the like our spreadsheet must be wrong, right? And we would yeah. go in one level deeper and and mm-hmm. and look in more detail, and then finally we hired a consultancy to check our spreadsheet and make sure that we weren't um, you know, uh, drinking any, any Kool-Aid or at least too much of it. And, you know, in the end, you know, do we just kept finding that this unintuitive result, which is like you, it turns out you end up kind of on parity with Jet A, right. Which even parity with Jet A is, is a lot cheaper than SAF, for example. Mm -hmm. That's
1: another way to think about it too. Sorry, we've we've had on for a while about it, but it's like, Battery electric is on this amazing cost curve. So eventually it's functionally free. And at that, like, at some point you're willing to do, you know, a little bit of operational, you know, hassle to get uh, a a fuel that's just on a totally different, you know, uh, cost scale than the alternative.
0: Mm -hmm. And as Magpie Aviation, what's going to be your business model? Are you going to be selling uh, these kits, for uh, conversion kits for... For operators that want to retrofit aircraft, are you going to license this technology? Maybe to OEMs. Um, what, what's the plan here?
1: We basically at every juncture err on the side of building the most focused um, um, business when that's available um, as our as our kind of foundation. But we're not afraid of expanding into operations if we see that as valuable. Uh, mm-hmm. So sorry, that's not a very specific answer, but. Um, you know, building the STC kits is the, that's the minimum that obviously has to exist. And then we think about adding on chunks to that, basically where we see the rest of the industry um, having a gap, right? Mm-hmm. We have no um, um, desire to get into parts of the industry that are already done, frankly, very well by existing operators.
0: What about certification? Have you been talking with the FAA about this? Uh, what do they think?
2: Yeah, I mean we're, uh, we're we've been talking to the FAA since we basically started. We had our first meet. You know, we we said we started in late December twenty twenty one. We had our first meeting with them. I think in February of twenty twenty two. So a couple months later, you know, we've had existing relationships with them from previous um, previous companies, and so we're actually a um, program of record in CECI, which is a, a program they have at FAA where you get to engage subject matter experts before you actually submit. Uh, for your TC or STC. And so we've had meetings with ATC, with um, aircraft standards uh, about this technology and some of the hurdles that will be there and kind of engaged with them to understand kind of whether what they see is difficult and and, and try to kind of adapt our approach accordingly. Um, one thing I should mention about the regulatory front is there's actually already FAA, ATC procedures for doing... Um, IFR refueling in civilian airspace. So when the military flies in civilian airspace, they use uh, what's called MARSA, M-A-R-S-A procedures, um, which basically are procedures for ATC to bring two aircraft separately together. And then when they're refueling, they're flown basically as a single unit in ATC's eyes. And then when they're done, they split back off and ATC assumed responsibility for them separately again. And so there's a good framework in place to kind of build upon um, for using that in civilian use cases.
0: Okay. That was kind of my next question. (laughs) The implications for ATC of having all these couplings and decouplings in air, and all these different elements that are operating separately, but at the same time, coordinately. Is the public opinion prepared to, to fly this way, are you planning to start with maybe cargo first, or you just uh, see passenger transportation as, a, as the primary goal here? For example, part of the public, they already have issues with turboprops, for example, which mm-hmm. is a perfectly sound technology that it works perfectly well, but they somehow associate that with a um, legacy, old aircraft, whatever. I, I'm just trying to picture here how people will react if they notice that they are being pulled by another aircraft and they are gliding, basically. <laughs> I don't know if you have given some thought to that and looked into this matter.
1: Yeah. I mean, our take is that consumers are actually pretty intelligent. And, you know, for example, with turboprops, I don't like flying in turboprops because they're loud. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the advantages yeah. of our technology is that if you're on, you know, if you have to work with an open propeller aircraft uh to start given you know the low density of some of these sustainable um fuel options like you know, hydrogen and electric um if it's quiet for most of the trip that's kind of nice and that's something yeah. that we can provide
0: yeah i, I was uh, about to say to- the experience of being in, in the aircraft that is being towed how is it going to be yeah. uh is it going to be i guess quiet because there there yeah, is have you ever been in no a glider engine.
2: Never. Have you a phone on the glider oh, okay Never. well it's really interesting you know you've probably seen the ga pilots they all wear the big headsets right because it's really loud and you need those right and then yeah. you have a boom microphone in a glider there's just a speaker on the dash and then you have a little microphone that just is like on the dash and you can mm-hmm. just talk like the normal talking voice right because it's just really quiet and you know the same would be true when you go to a low uh you know a low thrust or a zero thrust state um in the, in those turbo props
0: you can even make it a like a selling point. Like yeah. uh, on one hand, you might be some people might be reluctant because of the the whole setup, but on yeah. the other hand, you I guess an operator could market it as a, as the quiet way to fly. Yeah. yeah,
1: people might not not like it conceptually, but I think people also don't conceptually like being in a you know pressurized metal tube that's like you know an eighth of an inch thick, surrounded by a giant pile of flammable liquid. Mm-hmm. Which is True. how we fly today, and so I think at the end of the day, it comes down to proven safety, and I do think consumers are pretty smart about that. It's Proven safety plus basically the actual experience—is it, uh, you know, a ride likely to give you motion sickness? You know, for the on-towing, it's not really any different, so it's not going to change for that. Is it loud? You know, it's quieter for us, so our suspicion is that it, that's not really going to be
2: a barrier. I mean, for for the passenger, the only way they would know they were being towed is that it gets quieter. Okay. I mean you you can only look sideways, right? So you can't actually see <laughs> when you come on on and off on, off toe, you're you know the forces their forces are negligible, right? If it it might feel like you maybe hit a tiny bit of um turbulence. Yeah, like very light.
0: How long is this towing line?
1: Right now we're flying on a uh, 100 meter tow line, but when you get up to commercial scales, um a lot of the designs end up around a kilometer.
0: A kilometer. So wow. the
1: aircraft are actually pretty far apart. Wow. And this is what's enabled by mechanical towing. And you could also consider recharging an air, for example. There's oh. a lot more equipment involved with that. A lot more mm-hmm. can go wrong. And you know that cable is a lot heavier. So mm-hmm. as much as we draw the comparison to aerial refueling, we actually get a lot of advantages over aerial refueling from that large separation.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, the the towed aircraft will always have the option of restarting the engines and fly on its own power. But what happens if there's some issue with the, the towing line, the hooking mechanism? Is there a way to uncouple that mechanically in, in some way? Because I'm thinking one, one potential risk, I guess you guys have thought about that already, but is that they, they cannot separate. And I don't know, something happens with the, the first aircraft and it just pulls the other along. So if you are in the, the towed aircraft, yeah. how you solve this issue?
1: This is a problem that's been solved by gliders um, a number of times uh, throughout history. And basically, <laughs> you have a way to release the tether at the towing aircraft. Mm-hmm. You have a way to release the tether at the towed aircraft. Um, and then you may have an additional redundant way to release the tether from that active hook, the thing that makes a connection at the towed aircraft. Mm-hmm. So we have... You know you with safety it's all about having enough safeties but not too many you want enough to get the level of reliability you need but you don't want too many that will you know add complexity where you can get unexpected interactions so just like you know twin jets you know you could ask what happens if that second engine fails well each one can be built reliably enough that it functionally doesn't happen not for reasons that would be solved by having more engines certainly So it's the same thing here where each of those releases can be reliable enough that you're not going to, you know, blow through all three somehow.
0: And where are you now with the development process? I've seen on your website, you have a video that you've been Mm -hmm. of, of the testing you've been conducting with a small aircraft, which you have managed to successfully link up in the air and having one pull the other but i guess that's going to be that's only the initial stage um Mm -hmm. what's the time frame for this technology to be certified and to become commercially available
1: yeah so we're not putting out a certification timeline yet but we can say that this is an stc and a typical stc timeline is two to three years It's probably a little above typical in in complexity Um, Whereas a typical certification timeline is more like three to five, with actually quite a number of programs do end up overrunning the five. So we think it should be faster than certifying new aircraft. As to where we are today, we were surprised by our last round of flight tests. That was actually the first time that we had gotten a um, reconnection flight, when we'd finally proven all the technology through our ground testing and we're ready to try it and it worked far better than we expected in the air. So mm-hmm. now we we had expected this time we'd actually be doing a lot of fine tuning but now we're basically moving from that initial point of making the core technology for connection work onto scaling it up which it actually doesn't really get much bigger it just gets to be more robustly built. You know, so uh, I guess I shouldn't even say scaling it up, robustifying it for commercial operation, okay. which we can actually test at our current scale with a current aircraft for, for anything up to a 19,000 pound capable mm-hmm. tow device. So we're robustifying. We are working on the range of test conditions where we go from just like on a, on a light turbulence day, doing solid connections to doing it in rough conditions, to doing it at night, to doing it in simulated IFR conditions, where we have a safety pilot, you know, because make that,
0: sure that... that first test was in March, yeah. So
1: yeah, yeah.
0: okay, that's pretty yeah. recent. So
1: we yes, yeah, so it was a little over a year for us to get from kind of starting work on a on um, a prototype scale to um, successful connections.
0: You guys, you're based in the Bay Area. The company is Mark based in... Okay.
1: We're based hey. at Hayward Airport, which is one of the larger, longer runway, non-commercial airports in the bay Okay. Uh, other part I'll mention that we're doing right now, we're actually working on an electric tow plane as a demonstrator. And the crazy thing about it is if it hits its specs, it will be the highest payload range demonstrated with an electric aircraft to date. Wow. When you see it, it'll be smaller than you expect. Is hard to put it. Shows it off some of the magic of towing. So we have that coming together, so we can really do do the whole thing at this current scale. Uh, you know, not just with a gas tow, but do it right with with electric tow.
0: But are you retrofitting an existing airframe?
1: Okay. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's a heavily modified um, existing airframe. Okay, um, in, you know, in in. Obviously, we also need to get up to higher speeds going forward, higher speeds and altitudes. So we're we're um, starting to move into that, but we're going to, you know, kind of, uh, we, we don't have anything to announce on that front yet, is how I put it.
0: Okay. We didn't talk about speed, but the, the sort of speeds uh, this system can support, are they very different from the ones that uh, an aircraft would achieve by flying on its own?
1: How to put this? So we we haven't looked at transonic flight yet. But the designs we're working with are are pretty good up until you get up to where you really have to think about about mock um and so that that covers the turboprop range pretty well okay yeah now the one we're flying that's a that's a demonstrator, so yep. obviously' you know, some robustification to turn that demonstrator into a prototype and then turn that prototype into the you know certification intent article mm-hmm. but uh as for the fundamental technology it's there's not really a speed limit until you get up to that the the mock number issues.
0: Mm-hmm. You are a, a startup company in the best tradition of the of the Bay Area. Um, did you get uh, venture capital or yeah. how are you funded? Is it privately funded by angel investors or something like that?
1: Yeah, so we're funded by a combination of um, grant contract. Uh, you know, we're being paid for delivery and equity investment.
0: What do you mean that paid for delivery?
1: Oh, we, for example, um, we have an air force contract where we're, we're, you know, paid for deliverables to them.
0: Ah, okay. They, yeah. Okay. So there's some, um, government research money as well. Okay. Yeah. Makes uh, sense.
1: As is typical, you're trying to, you <laughs> know, you, you, you gain, you gain something from each of these, um, routes of funding mm-hmm. and it's smart in any startup to, um, you know, find the way to get, to get each and each in your pipeline.
0: You had this big announcement just a few weeks ago. What's the next big thing that we should be uh looking for?
1: We're really big on talking about what we've done as much as possible, more so than what we're going to do. Um so I don't think we'll have anything to say right now, but I think there'll be some exciting stuff coming up.
2: Yeah, I mean that was part of the reason you mentioned at the top um about how we were it was secretive, right? And That was really a lot less like we were talking to all kinds of people about what we were doing, but we weren't really being very public about it because we've seen a lot of renderings and other, you know, talk of what people will do in the future. Right. But we really wanted to make our first, you know, our first introduction to the world is like, here, we did it. Right. It's done. Yeah. 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 And so that was kind of, you know, that was kind of a core tenet of what we wanted to do with magpie and i think we, we want to continue
0: that yeah no, definitely it, it makes sense when you hear it for the first time it might sound outlandish i mean wow well, fascinating but you you need to see it on a video to understand it and um, i'm going to post a, a link on the on the show notes so that people can mm-hmm. can go and check and and see all this process because you have this camera that is showing just the moment when this cable uh links up with a towed aircraft that's really really amazing so yeah, for people that want to learn more about you guys and about what you are doing, I guess they should go to the website, which is MacPi- We well, Should listen to
1: your podcast, right? Yeah,
0: of course. Yeah, that's the first, <laughs> the first, the first step. But then um I think we we should send them to uh dot uh, we, you have a nice website. It's it's not overwhelming in terms of information, but you've got all the essentials, and and there are the videos and a nice description of of what you guys are doing with maps and graphs and all sort of visual resources to to help understand what you guys are up.
2: The other place to look for us is on LinkedIn. We we put out a couple of blog posts um, on LinkedIn, and we're going to probably continue to do that just to explain some of our thinking about the sustainable aviation uh, sector.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we see it again, you know, a fair bit of hype in the space. So we're trying to, um, you know, put out enough information to explain how we reach the positions we reach on, on, you know, battery electric being a clear, you know, kind of the the technology to really focus on moving forward. I, I wouldn't discount the other ones to be clear. Just, uh, you know, this is where I think we're kind of criminally um, under-resourcing um, the dominant the winter on the ground, so to say, for cars and trucks, right? Um, As far as aviation goes. Um, Why, you know, aviation emissions matter, why you can't just ask everyone to stop eating meat and keep flying, you know, it doesn't work in the real world. Um, um, What extra, you know, effective emissions come out with aircraft, because, you know, you do also get contrails from... Jet A and other liquid fuels. So we try to, you know, at least put out enough information that people can get a sense of where we're coming from. And it's not, you know, they don't have to take a guess.
0: Well, wishing you all the best with this project. And yeah, I'll keep an eye on all the news that come out because that's definitely one to, to keep an eye on. And and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to fly in this very ultra quiet way in, in the future. That's going to be quite a thing
2: yeah definitely yeah well thanks
1: for taking the time Mikkel and for the uh, excellent questions and um, we'll be uh, following your podcast
0: yeah thank you very much take care before you go and if you like this podcast a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify or whichever platform you're using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested thank you very much and see you soon